Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been meaning to read up on climate change and cardiovascular disease, but you're outside enjoying an abnormally and worryingly warm winter? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to the Climate Zone. It's uh, February now. You may be looking out your window on the bus or wherever you are and see that the days are getting brighter, the temperatures are starting to get a little bit warmer, and with that, sea levels are rising a bit higher, snowstorms are battering the US. No, 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 it's not quite the end of winter. Rather, it's the end of a stable climate as we know it. Here at Journal Spotting, we explore the crucial links between the climate crisis and our health. I am joined by a great team of climate clinicians. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Dr. LJ Smith. I'm a consultant in respiratory medicine. I'm Dr. Katia Florman, an IMT trainee. And I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson, a cardiology registrar and blown away by Barney's um, dramatic introduction. <laughs> we, uh, we should try and get some dramatic music to that. I think we've got some coming up actually in the podcast. Um, I am Dr. Barney Hirons, respiratory registrar. Katia, do you want to remind our listeners what the Climate Zone is all about? Sure, Barney. We are here to explore topics related to climate change and health, to try and inform and inspire healthcare professionals. If this is your first time with us, do listen back to past episodes on the carbon footprint of research, plant-based diets and climate activism. Oh, and also, don't forget to listen to the end of the episode where you can hear about how we're getting on with our climate challenge, cutting dairy, plastic, and LJ is going to set us a new challenge for the months ahead. Great, guys. Well, look, let's crack on with the subject at hand. Um, and John, you've been leading on this and speaking to some amazing people. So do you want to tell us, tell the listeners what they're about to hear? Thanks, Barney. So I'm sure you're all aware of the huge advances in cardiovascular disease management that we've seen, particularly in high income countries over the past few decades. If you need convincing, uh, there's been a roughly 50% reduction in cardiovascular disease mortality in the past 50 years. And um, yeah, someone just received a pig heart transplant. So, you know, big gains. Would you have that as a vegan, LJ? I'm not sure. Interesting question. Some tricky ethics there. <laughs> tricky. So lots of the gains in cardiovascular disease mortality have really come from our understanding of risk factors, smoking, high cholesterol, hypertension, physical inactivity, and diabetes. But now there's a new risk factor in town, which threatens to undo all the progress of the last 50 years, climate change. So in this episode, we're going to explore the two major environmental factors related to climate change that are likely to worsen cardiovascular health, high temperatures and air pollution. We'll explore how rising temperatures are increasing rates of myocardial infarction, how air pollution causes millions of cardiovascular deaths per year, and how things like diesel exhaust can cause acute and chronic changes to our patients' cardiovascular systems. Oh, wow. Sounds pretty dramatic. Um, I better listen closely. Yeah, uh, it's not all going to sound like the script of an apocalypse film, fortunately. We're also going to explore how physicians can help their patients mitigate the effects of climate change, some of the policy measures implemented to reduce air pollution, and why we shouldn't lose hope over what we can do as citizens and physicians to help. To help me navigate those polluted, murky skies and warm temperatures, I've sought out some world experts on the topic. What we observe in our studies is that these temperatures trigger cardiovascular disease mortality. That is Professor Annette Peters dialing in from the clean air of the Bavarian Hills near Munich. She's the director of the Institute of Epidemiology Helmholtz Zentrum in Germany and is a world-leading academic on the topic of environmental health. I wouldn't underestimate that, you know, those air pollutants in the environment that we deal with the day in, day out, um, that have many different harmful effects in the cardiovascular system. And when you look at population levels, people are dying early due to air pollution that's linked to cardiovascular uh, conditions. And that is Dr. Mark Miller, dialing in all the way from Edinburgh, Scotland. We're going to hear from Mark in the second half of the episode, when he talks us through the striking effects of air pollution on the cardiovascular system. Dr. Miller is very well placed to talk on this as he's a senior research fellow at the University of Edinburgh, where he works within the British Heart Foundation Centre for Cardiovascular Science and has published widely on the topic. Before we get going, as always, listeners, um, we'd love to hear, get some feedback from you to, think, to hear what you thought of the episode. Um, email us on journalspotting at gmail.com or on any social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, WhatsApp all your friends and colleagues and enjoy the episode. 
our burning of fossil fuels, our destruction of nature, our approach to industry, construction and learning, are releasing carbon into the atmosphere at an unprecedented pace and scale. We are already in trouble. Listening to that, I'm struck by how much it sounds like a scene out of Lord of the Rings. Sadly, it's not fantasy. Rather, it's national treasure Sir David Attenborough speaking to delegates at COP26 earlier this year. Or last year, I should say. I thought there was no better person to remind us just how much our planet is changing due to climate change. I thought I would start by asking our expert epidemiologist, Professor Peters, how these climatic changes were actually going to affect our cardiovascular health. So climate change changes our weather. And with an increase of one degree um, Celsius, which does not sound a lot in if we think of it in our daily lives, it actually increases the temperature ranges we are experiencing quite a bit. And so um, weather changes more rapidly and also hotter days are becoming more and more frequent. We have seen this in the past decade. And so days with temperatures above 25 or, or 30 uh, degrees Celsius are becoming more frequent, for example, in Central Europe. And what we observe in our studies is that these temperatures um, trigger cardiovascular disease mortality. We know that uh, among the hot days, um, prolonged periods of hot weather is um, especially um, risky and more people die during these periods. And then especially if the nights stay unusually hot for longer periods, we speak of heat waves. And um, there are heat waves like... Um, the heat, the 1995 heat wave in Chicago, which really sparked uh, a number of deaths. And in Europe, we had the 2003 heat wave where, um, in total, 70,000 people in Europe, for example, died. Okay, so the world is getting hotter. How then does a hotter world lead to more cardiovascular disease? So it's, um, it's, we are accustomed to temperature changes. And so we try to adapt to that. We sweat. We kind of try to cool down and preserve our central body temperature. But as a consequence, we see a lot of changes in coagglutability. We see inflammation increase. Um, we, our, um, our cells or our, our tissues get more leaky. And so there is, um, the, the body tries to cope. And there is, um, heat exhaustion, which is kind of characterized by this increased sweating, um, changes in inflammation and so forth. But there's also heat stroke. So the more extreme, uh, representation that then you no longer sweat, um, but then you can, one can, so if the, the temperatures are not preserved, you can enter into coma or enter into epilepsy. And so there are these severe um, changes if the body is not able to um, cool down uh, sufficiently. And it's simply also because our proteins, so our all of our enzymes, they denaturate if the temperatures are too high. So we simply need to maintain our average temperature. And if it's too hot, um, and this is also relative, um, simply if it's too hot, we cannot do this anymore. Okay, so heat is pretty bad for the body. But are there any specific cardiovascular diseases that could be more susceptible to heat that we're going to see more of as climate change takes hold? Well, it's, um, we have found that myocardial infarctions can be triggered by heat. And, um, this is most likely probably through this, um, that, that the vulnerable plaques can be either damaged through, um, changes in rheology or in the coagulation cascade or simply through an arrhythmic process, which kind of sits then or, or make the, makes the damage of a potential um, plaque rupture more uh, severe. 
And it's really interesting that, for example, in Germany, we run in the area of Augsburg, a myocardial in infarction registry since the mid-80s. And when we looked at the first 15 years uh, until the turn of the century, we actually could not detect that people were experiencing myocardial infarctions on very hot days. However, when we now looked at the 15 years of this century, we saw this um, increase in uh, myocardial infarctions after hotter days. And in Augsburg, where we do this, is actually a small or mid-sized town. It has two rivers. It's, it's not hot as you would expect it in the tropics. But nevertheless, you see this increase, and it was particularly seen in people with diabetes and people with hypertension, uh, suggesting that indeed underlying cardiovascular, you may call it multimorbidity or other risk factor constellations are making people more vulnerable. And in addition to myocardial infarction, there's a link with arrhythmia and also people who have um, congestive heart disease are at potential high risk during heat episodes. And this, for them, it's even more important to keep their circulatory problems um, under control. So the world is heating up. Our cardiovascular systems are susceptible to those increases in temperature. But I wanted to pause and try to get to the bottom of a problem we've confronted a few times on the climate zone. When these large-scale epidemiological studies are performed, like the ones Professor Peters does, and they report deaths attributable to an environmental exposure, such as heat or air pollution, how are you actually able to confirm that a death is attributed to that exposure? So um, it's, it's easy to a attribute um, a certain number of deaths to um, either heat or air pollution if you have a real episode. Because then you kind of see really, you can really see these deaths occurring and how they are substantially above the, the normal range of mortality. And which is kind of, if you look at it over time, is really varying from day to day. And there is some kind of underlying probabilistic um, uh, feature beyond uh, underlying this. And then if you, so, so the idea is you study the entire population. When you look at the time series and look at days which are hotter than others, you kind of, um, you have the entire population exposed. Of course, everybody of us has their own risk factor profile. And that kind of changes as we age. Um, most likely it, it changes to the worse, but if we change our lifestyle, it may also change to the better. But this is like a slow process. And if you then look at an entire population, you have a distribution of people who are potentially very, very vulnerable at this moment in time and others who are not. And so you can kind of you look at the entire population and then you say, well, the, the smoking rate and all this is kind of slow, changing quite slowly. And you can model this as an underlying trend of the risk of disease. And then you have these <clears throat> changing uh, environmental conditions. And if they would not have any impact, you would simply not see changes in the, in, in the frequency of death occurring. And you would not get a signal which would go beyond just a random error, just a random chance of observing sometimes more and sometimes less myocardial infarction. So basically, you need a lot of data. And then if there is indeed underlying a true association, then you are able to observe this if your data is large enough. You can kind of statistically observe it, and then you need, of course, to repeat it. If you see it in one location, that's not enough. But if you see it multiple times, and also with kind of slightly varying designs and so forth, you can be quite sure that actually um, there is an underlying association which, which contributes to these day-to-day -day changes that we observe. The tricky question in this scenario is to say, whose death at that time, day was really due to heat and not to the due to the random process, which is also occurring. Or if you take a myocardial infarction, we know that, for example, extreme uh, exertion triggers myocardial infarction. 
extreme anger um, uh, triggers myocardial infarction. So there are other triggers. So so you need a lot of data. But then, so that is the difficulty to. It's not the difficulty to um, to to ascertain yourself that the underlying process is there. The difficulty is really assigning to an individual whether this was now caused by air pollution or by something else which you haven't observed. So it sounds not that easy to do. It probably explains why we've been struggling a bit with the concept here on journal spotting. But now back to the cardiovascular system. It seems clear from the evidence that patients are going to be experiencing more heat and this is going to negatively impact on their health. I was hoping to find out from Professor Peters if she had any advice for treating physicians on how to mitigate these effects for their patients. Yeah, I think the the treating physicians have a really important role to help their patients. I think, first of all, it's important for them to realize that, that especially people with underlying uh, cardiovascular disease or people with hypertension are at higher risk. And that for them, it's really important that they take precautionary um, measures so that they do not expose themselves to heat unnecessarily, that they drink enough, that they kind of cool off if needed, um, and that they also watch their uh, emerging signs of um, potential disease worsening, um, for example, to watch whether edema in the legs or extremities are evolving. That's one part, so that they kind of help educating their, their patients to help themselves or educate the relatives to help patients. Um, because often it's, it's the, it's the family or the, 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 the supportive social network, which needs to make, uh, especially elderly people aware that they should need, uh, that they should drink enough, that they need to dress properly. And um, for them, it's also more difficult because they have been growing up and their customs or their way of behavior comes out of times when it was cooler. So as now our, our world heats up, the, the, the way they have learned to live may not be the optimal a- anymore. So they need really advice. And, and I think it's, it's, it's important to be alert there. But there's also a very, um, another very important area, namely, to adapt the medication treatment, the treatment regimes. For example, there's direct um, interactions that for the um, anti-cholinergic medication may alter the um, the adaptation to temperature regulation. The same is true for anti-hypertensivers, uh, diuretics. Um, and anti-epileptica. So, so these, there are, is a quite large list of medication where we expect interactions. And so I think it's really critical that the treatment regimes are adapted during these periods, um, when it's hot. And, and again, I think this is just an emerging area, which is just, uh, receiving, uh, attention, but I think it's very important. And it's also a possibility to, um, avoid deaths or, or severe cardiovascular events during these heat episodes. Now, we're going to come back to Professor Peters later on in the episode, as she has some real insight into some of the policy solutions that could help tackle these problems she's outlined. But before we hear those, it's time to explore the other huge environmental risk factor that's damaging the heart and the vascular system, air pollution. And there's no better person to discuss this than with Dr. Mark Miller. A quick warning from Mark himself. I can certainly talk about air pollution in great depth, so I hope your audience is bracing itself. Fortunately for Dr. Miller... This is in fact a podcast about air pollution and not a trip to the pub with his mates. So this is probably a good time to talk intensely about the topic. Now, Dr. Miller has been in the air pollution game for a long time. His research aims to determine the biological pathways through which inhaled particles are able to damage the cardiovascular system. I started by trying to find out from him which particles in particular we're worried about and if they were the same as the ones that we historically know damage the lungs. So, I mean, there's really sort of four key air pollutants that really uh, people's attention have been really sort of sat on. And one is the particles in the air, uh, and they're in two different sizes that we measure in environments, so PM10 and PM2.5. So PM stands for particulate matter. Uh, So that's the particles, and then there's a couple of gases. Well, there's quite a few gases, but the ones we tend to focus our attention on are things like nitrogen dioxide and ozone. And all these different pollutants, they've all been shown to have different health effects on the body. 
and some, some of those pollutants have more health effects on certain organs of the body than the others. So overall, if you look at all the evidence and you see what are the problems that air pollution, you know, what, which air pollutions are linked with adverse health effects, mm. the answer to that is all of them can be in terms of the studies, but the sort of strongest evidence, the sort of biggest associations or the most consistent associations tend to be for particulate matter. So it's the particles in the air that are, you know, seem to be driving a lot of the health effects. And that's certainly where our researchers try to focus on to try and sort of work out, well, well, why is it the particles? And, you know, if we understand the biology of how they're having these health effects, then we, we've got a good case to then say, well, let's regulate these more strictly. Your point is a good one. So certain organs affect more than others. And so your gaseous air pollutants like ozone and nitrogen dioxide, they have much more consistent effects on the lung than they do for the cardiovascular system, say, for example. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. So, but you certainly don't want to dismiss uh, ozone and nitrogen dioxide. Um, they are clearly linked to effects on the lung and other, other parts of the body too. Dr. Miller has been researching air pollution since he joined Professor David Newby's team in 2005. I wanted to hear from him how far along the research had come. How did it compare to other environmental exposures that we know are harmful, such as smoking, for which we've established quite definitively its harmful effects and have lots of evidence for? I think we've developed huge, I think the research has developed massively over the last sort of two decades. So I think that's for sure. And I think it's, it's a good parallel that you draw uh, with smoking. So, I mean, we know that smoking is associated with, with cardiovascular disease uh, and we know an awful lot about it. And so when I came into this research, which was 2005, people were starting to become aware that cardiovascular disease was linked to air pollution. So pre-1990, everyone, which is quite, quite, it's almost obvious, isn't it, that you breathe air pollution into your lungs, it's not going to be good for you. And a lot was known about some of those respiratory effects. And then from about sort of 1992, people were starting to do the big epidemiological studies where actually they started to work out Hang on, it's also associated with cardiovascular effects. Um, <clears throat> but people at that point didn't really understand why. So by about 2005, there were sort of lots of different ideas, but things weren't quite meshing together. And then over the last sort of 16 years, we've sort of got a much better understanding of the biology and all the different effects it has on uh, that air pollutants have on the body, in particular cardiovascular system. Okay, so now that we've got a sense for the research and how much it's been advancing over the last few years, I wanted to know from Mark how many deaths air pollution was actually causing and what proportion of these are driven by cardiovascular disease. When you talk about the early deaths that are linked to air pollution, so we now know that air pollution is linked to early deaths. You know, we don't find lumps of air pollution in the heart when we do an autopsy, so you don't see air pollution written on the death certificate of someone who's had a heart attack, but you can do all the statistics and see that Yes, actually, air pollution is cutting people's lives short. So when you look at those sort of deaths, actually, the majority of them are cardiovascular disease. So they're not actually diseases of the lung. They do uh, form about sort of third of the deaths linked to air pollution. But about 50 to 60% of the deaths due to air pollution are all linked to cardiovascular causes. So in particular, ischemic heart disease and um, stroke as well. And that's a, that's a phenomenal amount so if I tell you some of the staggering statistics that you, you might hear, and it's the worldwide one that always gets me every time. So people have now estimated that every single year, air pollution is responsible for, you know, up to 9 million deaths across the world every single year, year on, year out. And you consider that half of them are due to cardiovascular disease. Well, I think you can see that you know, there's a major problem here. That's a phenomenal number of uh, cardiovascular deaths or early deaths, premature deaths that are uh, being caused by air pollution. It's probably just worth repeating those. Half of the 9 million deaths attributed to air pollution annually around the world are driven by cardiovascular disease. So I wanted to know from Dr. Miller, were there any specific cardiovascular diseases that were more commonly driven by air pollution? I think we do. I mean, the, the evidence is strongest. So we've got, we've got two factors here, haven't we? We've got what's the evidence strongest for and which are the, the biggest effects. And I think ischemic heart disease, coronary artery disease, uh, they are the ones that people have focused on. So that's got a lot of the attention. So ischemic heart disease in particular seems to be very strongly linked to uh, you know, the, the early deaths that are caused by air pollution. Um, and stroke as well. I suppose strokes are a little bit more complicated example because, you know, people die in, in different ways. 
But actually, there's lots of different cardiovascular disease. So without actually looking at the hard numbers, people have looked for associations between air pollution and lots of different cardiovascular disease. And to be honest, it's linked to almost everything. So uh, heart failure, arrhythmia, uh, thrombosis, various different atherothrombotic diseases. It's linked to them all. I mean, there's, I think, pretty much every cardiovascular disease. The, the evidence is less strong for things like peripheral artery disease, for example, but I think there's still a reasonable amount of evidence evidence for that. And when you look at the biological mechanisms that are sort of coming into play here, it's perhaps understandable why it's having effects on all these different conditions. Now, no good cardiology clocking is complete without clarifying what cardiovascular risk factors a patient has. And I want to know from Dr. Miller whether if air pollution was not only driving the mortality, but could it also be driving an increase in risk factors for cardiovascular disease? And are the biological pathways the same as those directly caused by air pollution? The, they are the same. They are the same. I think it's perhaps even a broader picture. They encompass almost everything now. So uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit in a second about, you know, what's what the different effects it will have on the cardiovascular system are. And you'll see the mechanisms and you'll see why it might be linked to disease. But they are linked to the risk factors as well. Mm. So if we consider high blood pressure as one of the most important uh, you know, <clears throat> risk factors for cardiovascular disease. There's now good evidence that air pollution exposure has actually a sort of it's a small linkment in, in blood pressure, but it's quite consistent that it's around somewhere between two to five millimeters of mercury uh, that air pollution is linked to, which sounds very small. It's, you know, it's small when you consider what happens when you, you know, get up and down out of your chair. But across a whole population, this is a, a phenomenal impact and one of the most important risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And there's other ways it sort of interacts as well. We see links with air pollution with diabetes. Uh, we know there is, for example, interaction, well, there's differences in people's susceptibility to air pollution, and that may incorporate risk factors like smoking or what diet they have as well. So it certainly is linked to the risk factors as well as all the biological mechanisms that sort of come further down the line. So we've got a sense of the sheer scale of mortality that air pollution is causing and what diseases it affects. Now with our epidemiological hat on, how much does air pollution actually increase the risk of cardiovascular disease? If we're talking about the overall risk, so not at an individual level, and we're just talking about populations, so we're doing epidemiological studies, um, it varies a lot for different pollutants. So if we look at PM 2.5, so the, the, the smaller particles that we measure in the air, that are strong into health effects. So if you look at things like short-term exposure, the sort of general feeling is it's giving an increased risk or relative risk of about 1%. So it's a 1% increase, or maybe just below that, in terms of cardiovascular mortality, in terms of various cardiovascular disease. When you look at long-term effects, they increase drastically. And I think the meta-analysis say there's an increased risk of about 6% in the cardiovascular mortality, although it's very varied. And in fact, uh, just looking at a paper today, I've seen studies where they say, you know, there is a 50% increase in risk per standard deviation of air pollutant in the setting that they did. So. You know, there's quite sizable effects um, that these things are having. At this point, it seemed like the right time to ask if there were any specific pollutants that were of concern to the cardiovascular system. Dr. Miller's own research has looked into something called ultrafine particles, which I was hoping to hear a bit more about from him. Well, they're all problematic. Um, and I think, as mentioned before, the particles are one of the ones that are particularly worrying. But even just saying particles, that's a huge oversimplification. So, so back when we started addressing the problem of air pollution and cardiovascular disease, um, we, we had to make that decision, or, or Professor Newby, I should say, had to make that decision, you know, what air pollutants are we looking at? And we knew that the evidence was strongest for particles. Now, the reason why this whole research came about is we, uh, we bumped into some particle toxicologists who did work into nanoparticles and other particles that are toxic in occupational settings and it sparked this whole conversation and one of the things they really were keen to point out was uh, were that you know particles are not all the same they're made of different things they're different sizes and the size of particles is particularly important uh, when it comes to the health effects as well so we're measuring the smallest particles by pm 2.5 so these are particles that are 2.5 micrometers so that's about a fifth the width of a human hair so not something you can see in the air but you know you can measure under a microscope what the particle of toxicologists was saying is actually there's another there's another whole set of particles you're not looking at and that's the particles that are even smaller still 
So there's something called ultrafine particles or nanoparticles, and these are 0.1 micrometers. So we're talking, you know, much, much smaller than the width of a human hair. The sort of thing you would need electron microscopes uh, to see. And actually, if you did a lot of the sort of hypothetical background, actually, is these particles that are really worrying? Because although they, they don't weigh much, so they don't actually make, you can't measure them very easily by measuring PM2.5. Because they're so small, they have this huge reactive surface area. And that's what the body sees. The body doesn't see how heavy is that particle. It sees what the reactive surface area is. And so, uh, we came to really want to say, well, actually, do we need to look at these much smaller particles? And one of the sources of these small particles in environments, and particularly urban environments, is vehicle exhaust. So vehicle exhaust produces much more of these smaller particles than the bigger ones. And in particular, diesel exhaust is the thing that generates even more of them. So it generates more of these tiny ultrafine particles than petrol exhaust. And we have lots of different reasons for thinking, you know, these things might be more harmful. And that's where we set up our studies as well. So uh, it was rather rather sort of uh, brash studies, where rather sort of ambitious studies, shall we say, where what we did was we actually, we didn't want to just look in laboratories, we wanted to look, ask this, uh, what's happening at the human level, the patient level. So um, what uh, we did was we collaborated with scientists in the Netherlands and Sweden, and they have these sort of unique exposure facilities where effectively you have a volunteer, people volunteer to sit in a box and cycle away in an atmosphere that's uh, filled with diesel exhaust from an idling diesel engine in the next room. That literally sounds like my commute to work. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I know. Why do we need these expensive facilities? I could have volunteered, yeah, <laughs> cycling yeah. through South London. Wow, so some people volunteered genuinely to sit there and have a mask over their face with a diesel exhaust plugged in. Absolutely, absolutely to, to sit yeah. in a box. And I volunteered for a few of these studies myself, and I'm, I'm still standing. I don't know what mental health's like, but I'm still standing. <laughs> I think the important thing to note about these chambers, so I mean one of the reasons this chamber experiment's so good is that you're no longer looking at this big complex mixture. So when we try to look at the epidemiology and see all these different chemicals in air pollutions, hundreds of thousands of different chemicals in air pollutions, and we're trying to find out what is it that's causing the biological effects, that's pretty tricky. So these facilities you have, you can actually expose people to specific uh, exhausts, uh, specific pollutants. So, for example, diesel exhaust, which we thought the most harmful. As a caveat, I should say that it's all done with the strongest ethics, as all controlled yeah. <laughs> conditions. The important word that I missed out there is dilute diesel exhaust. So, what we do uh, is right, we put right. in a chamber, and we don't just have a, an engine pumping exhaust into the chamber, it's diluted down, and by that way, you can then look at the levels of air pollution you want to measure. So, you can set them out to be is this a level that you would see in a London street or is it a level that you would see in Beijing if you were cycling on a motorway? And actually, most of the experiments are probably more relevant to Beijing than, than the UK, but uh, it's still real-world levels of air pollution that we're doing. And that's, of course, is how we, we have the ethics to do these experiments. You know, We're studying something that people are exposed to, just like yourself, when they cycle to work every day. So, Dr Miller was conducting the experiment that we all do every day when we cycle into work, sit behind diesel exhaust. But I wanted to know from Dr. Miller, what did his experiments show in terms of the harmful effects of these ultrafine particles on the heart and on the vascular system? That's, I think, what surprised us most when we started doing these studies. And this was a 10-year-long program, so we did lots of different studies with different air pollutants, with healthy people and volunteers. And we studied all aspects of the cardiovascular system. And I'm if I just summarise that 10 years up into, you know, a very short sentence, the thing yeah. that really surprised <laughs> us was that, okay, we expected to see something bad. So, you know, there's some similarities to smoking, so perhaps it does have an effect on the cardiovascular system. What we were most amazed at is just how, uh, how many effects it had on the cardiovascular system and how substantial they were. So you could study the blood vessels and you could see that the blood vessels got stiffer. They no longer could relax as well, so they became much more sluggish. The, the, the function of their endothelial cells, which governs the whole cardiovascular uh, system, that, uh, that becomes more sluggish and harder to react. You can look at the blood, the blood itself, and you can see that it's more likely to clot. So it makes, you know, you've got blood that's more likely to clot. Not only that, but the blood vessels then uh, stop releasing substances which help get rid of the clots. So, I mean, if you have someone with heart disease, you, you really don't want them to be prone to having blood clots. And then we can do studies in uh, patients as well. So we did study people with ischemic heart disease and we 
uh, ask people to you know have this exposure to the diluted diesel exhaust and then do uh, sort of an exercise test afterwards and we measure their different heart rate variability and we can see clear differences in ST segment depression so we could show that certain regions of the heart were becoming more ischemic and that it was much stronger in the people that had a, a diesel exhaust exposure compared to ones that um, had just had a clean air exposure. So we saw lots of these different effects. Mm. And if I can stress it one more, say, well, these weren't necessarily just small effects. So if we looked at just the function of the vasculature and, you know, we looked at the arteries, actually someone who had a short diesel exposure of two hours had a really big impairment to how well those arteries could relax. And it wasn't that different to looking at a smoker and a non-smoker. You know, you could see such a sizable effect just after two hours of diesel exhaust. In addition to that, we actually invited these people back the next day and it was still there. That impairment was still there. So it wasn't just something just when they come outside the chamber, it was still there the next day. So, I mean, these are long lasting and substantial effects. And I think that is the sort of thing that when I tried to sum up the research, I tried to stress, you know, we've, we've all got lots of things to worry about, especially in the current uh, two years. But these are real sizable effects of air pollution over relatively short term exposures. The effects will undoubtedly be bigger long term exposures. This is something we need to take seriously. So Dr. Miller helped unpick some biological pathways that could be driving these harmful effects. I wondered whether that meant they had come across any preventative measures, such as some pharmacology, that could help reduce the harmful effects of air pollution. I mean, surely someone's done a study on statins. So there has been a lot of um, studies that have tried to sort of prevent the effects of air pollution uh, through various different, uh, either through supplements rather than pharmacology. There's a handful of pharmacology ones, but there's mostly supplement ones. They all tend to be antioxidants, so your vitamin compounds or your Mediterranean diets, for example, or your fish oil supplements. And that's because oxidative stress is one of the key mechanisms that is associated with the effects of air pollution. So all the major air pollutants generate oxidative stress in the body, and we all know that oxidative stress worsens any disease, essentially. And air pollution is particularly strong in uh, generating oxidative stress. Um, so when people have tried to see if can we reverse it or can we prevent it, um, they have seen some beneficial effects. So we've seen beneficial effects from fish oil. There's been studies saying that Mediterranean diets sort of help sort of limit some of these effects of air pollution. Um, as far as I'm aware, people have tried to use vitamin supplements. There's not many of them. They haven't shown great effects. And you, you, your audience will know from the sort of work in, uh, with cardiovascular disease in general that vitamin supplements have not been this great, they've not held this great promise that they, they could have. In terms of other drugs, there's a few sort of studies suggest that, yes, there are other things that uh, maybe we could limit to. So statins did, uh, in that one single study, did show beneficial effects in terms of sort of limiting some of the air pollution effects. Um, if you're looking at the effects of air pollution on the heart and you're looking at heart rate variability or ischemic damage and you give someone beta blockers, you can actually almost completely damp down those effects because one of the mechanisms by which air pollution affects the heart is it affects the autonomic nervous system. So it affects the way the heart is regulated. And, you know, you do an animal study and you see, you know, you, you give it a big exposure of an air pollutant and you see, for example, a much bigger area of damage in the heart caused from the myocardial ischemia and you give that same animal uh, the beta blocker, you don't see that effect anymore. So I think that's... Uh, that's something, you know, it holds promise that we that these drugs can have effects. It would be a note of caution in my mind, though. So, that okay, yes, there are medications that we can use perhaps to dampen down some of the effects of air pollution. And it may be that they, these are things that patients with cardiovascular disease are already on. So, you know, it's great to keep, keep taking them. It will help with your heart disease as well as the heart disease that's linked to uh, the air pollution. But I think the attention needs to be on getting rid of the air pollutants. So we shouldn't become complacent and just accept air pollution in the environment while popping the pills. Uh, there's a role for them. You're someone who's very highly susceptible and you live a, and you live in the city centre of Delhi. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe there might be some benefits with putting them on uh, statins or maybe a little higher bit statins and antioxidants than normally are. But we need to get rid of the air pollutants ultimately. Now, I thought this was a good chance to explore something with two experts that I've been increasingly concerned about with the risks of air pollution. When I cycle to work behind cars and trucks emitting fumes, I worry not just for my own health, but for the health of many of our patients that walk along polluted roads. 
But in cardiology clinics and on the wards, I don't hear nearly as much discussion about air pollution as compared to smoking or making sure you take your statin. It seems hard to communicate air pollution to our patients. If we compare it to something like smoking, it's much easier to say if you smoke this small stick, it will be bad for your heart. And if you smoke 20 of them every day, it's going to be really bad. I wanted to hear what our two experts had to say on translating air pollution research into advice for patients. Professor Peters first. So so really translating air pollution is, is really hard because you cannot see it unless it's quite extreme. You cannot smell it, um, at least nowadays, unless you, you have direct comparison. Now in Germany, you can smell it if you are in a city without a low emission zone compared to a city with a low emission zone. You realize you smell it. Or when we, we had the German reunion, we had, um, in Eastern Germany still the use of brown coal. So very dirty coal. And then you can smell it. Mm, today, you may be able to smell actually air pollution if you go to small village towns where they use a lot of wood combustion. And especially if they, if they do not use well dried wood, but just put everything what they can into their ovens. Then you on a, on a cloudy winter day, you may smell air pollution. Um, and you may feel that it actually is irritating your nose. But most of the time, you do not feel it because we are, in a way, adapted to it. We, Our lungs are able to cope with it. The point is, I think that, yes, the lungs are cleaning it up um, to, to, a, to a large degree, but then it's also impacting the... Or it's in a way exhausting our, our, our capacities to mitigate oxygen radicals. So it, it, it adds oxidative stress like a fatty meal or, um, not sufficient amount of exercise. So these, the, the unhealthy lifestyle issues or things, they add oxygen radicals to our, to our entire system. And air pollution does that too in the deep lungs. And yes, it's only a small impact, but if that is long over your lifetime, it can have severe health consequences. And it's, it's in a way, it's like one fatty meal doesn't hurt you. But if you eat a lot of fatty meals, you have, you are hurt. And it's similar with the air pollution. You do not smell it. But it kind of puts constant stress on yourself and it doesn't stop outside. It also gets into your rooms. And so in a way, it's an area where we simply need to rely on the monitoring system and on the state-based control. It's nothing you can, I mean, unless it's very severe, it's nothing you can really sense. Um, so, so it's, it's, if you're in a city, you do not feel it. But maybe if you go to a clean air place, if you go to the seaside, you, you have this, or in, in Germany, you go to a mountainside and you have this feeling your lung opens up and something good happens to you. So, so maybe it's, it's that, it's that vision which one needs to invoke in people. It's, it's not so much that you can distinguish within a city. But you can, you can distinguish when you, you go outside, when you maybe sleep better, when you find another thing, when you find you do not have these, um, dirty, dirty dust on your windows, in, in your windows links. Um, or if you look to snow, if you look to snow on a, on a, in, in, in a city, it turns to, st- to start to be brown within a day or two. This is pollution. This is what normally our lungs um, uh, breathe in. If you go to a mountain resort, the snow is white. An interesting perspective on trusting our patient's senses. I wondered what Dr. Miller thought about this issue. I think that's one of the challenges. And I think if we could do that, you know, we could have really strong messaging, you know, both in terms of health practitioners and also for patients as well. It's tricky to do that at an individual level. Now, what you could do, for example, is you could do a study and you could measure heart rate variability, let's say. 
and you can do that on a portable monitor for your patient and you can look to see how their heart rate variability changes. Um, you can then, you know, look at the effects overall. What does a set change in heart rate variability? How does that increase their their risk of developing various different cardiovascular disease? So you could potentially get a sort of estimate of how, uh, you know, an effect of air pollution has on a surrogate measure, and then what that might have to a person's risk. But there's lots of different assumptions in there, and I think what mm. we I think if we had really good ways to say, you know, this was a good biomarker effect. So we've got a great biomarker in the blood, something we can measure in the blood that we can then link to exactly what we've breathed in. And it's also linked to a biological consequence, which we will know will cause, you know, yourself to have a 5% increase in risk. That would be fantastic. We don't have that at the moment. And I think a lot of mm. research should be directed down to finding good biomarkers. Okay, so it's clear climate change is going to make the world hotter and as we continue to emit fossil fuels, we are filling the air with toxic pollutants that are damaging our hearts and our vasculature. It's time to look at some of the solutions to this enormous problem. I asked Professor Peters what she felt needed to be done on a policy level to mitigate the effects of climate change on the heart. So I think the, um, the most important measure is probably to move away from fossil fuels, even though this will mean major changes in our daily lives. But um, I think that this is a major um, potential area where we could mitigate both climate change in the long run as well as reduce the air pollution burden. And um, this together may really help cardiovascular health, especially because we, with the current climate scenarios, even in the best of all scenarios, we still would have a warmer, a warming up world for the next decades to come. And if then air pollution is reduced, also the negative impacts of these hot days would be reduced. So, so the um, zero carbon or, or having climate neutral cities is, is really um, a measure, a long term measure to also further improve cardiovascular disease um, burden overall. And um, and then, of course, um, there are these other dual wins where, for example, moving to more towards active mobility is something where you have the benefit of the physical exercise, which reduces the risk for um, cardiovascular disease. And you have, um, again, um, a, a way of um, mobility which does not contribute to further CO2 emissions. So, and, and I think the last point where people are also, or which also are people discussing is to move to um, a planetary health diet. So diets which reduce um, the impact of agriculture on climate change and um, meat production on climate change and also offering the health benefit of uh, reducing the cardiovascular disease risk through, for example, eating less meat or having a healthier uh, vegetable-based diet. So, so I think there are these three areas where um, we can change things um, and um, to also, and, and we at the same time have a benefit for ourselves. And um, and I think also thinking more along these lines um, is is important because then we as citizens will have um, will the, there is a need to have a lot of change happening. And um, if we know that this is happening for our own health, but also we have the willingness to really um, as citizens. Um, take these changes and make these changes, I think that also will help the politicians to um, to implement these measures. It's great to hear those interventions that are clearly good for both the planet and an individual's cardiovascular health. I'd recommend any listeners to head back to our episode about the health benefits of a plant-based diet, which outlined in more detail how a planet-friendly diet can also be good for your health. And with regards specifically to air pollution... One policy intervention that has had a lot of attention recently is the low emission zone. Maybe you live in one. 
These are areas where the most polluting vehicles are regulated either through stopping them from entering or imposing a levy. I wondered whether Professor Peters knew if there were any in Germany and if they had any documented health benefits. Yeah, so um, we also do have low emission zones um, in Germany um, and have introduced them around 15 years ago. Um, of course, the low emission zones are always the, the question is how large and how small are they? Um, and um, uh, London was one of the cities which started it quite early. And also some research indicated that especially during the early times, um, the it may have not been um, large enough and also congestion charge um, charges may not be sufficient. Like you really need to reduce the, the, the number of vehicles and of course also make them cleaner. And indeed, in Germany, we can we can demonstrate that they have the impact in terms of pollution. Um, and actually, they are they are more powerful for non-regulated pollutants such as black carbon or ultra fine particles. So it's they actually low emission zones are really beneficial. However, often on um, PM10 or PM2.5, the reductions are not as dramatic as one would have wished them to be. However, if then one looks at pollutants, which are particulate matter pollutants, which are closer to the exhaust, one can really see the differences. And I, they have indeed, I think, a real benefit in terms of also changing the car fleet. This is at least what we were observing in, in Germany. So if you, for example, take Berlin, our capital, there was the low emission zone, but it turned out that actually also the people who were living out of outside the low emission zone started to buy different cars. So that one of the difficulties is to compare within the zone and outside of the, the zone because actually everybody changes their, their car, their behavior as well as their cars. And so, I think they have been really important to contributing to the overall downtrending of air pollution in Europe, which even though our standards are not as where they are, we have observed over the past two decades a decrease in air pollution, which I think is a good thing. It's not sufficient, but it was there, and the low emission zones are one of the measures which are really helpful and um, interesting for myself. So when you now start to visit areas where there isn't a low emission zone, you can start smelling air pollution. You can smell diesel. You, because there, the, the, at least in Germany, in areas without a low emission zone, the, the car fleet composition is much older and, and you have this old smell of pollution in your nose. So, low emission zones are crucial on a policy level and may have a big impact on different air pollutants, in particular those that we don't measure such as ultrafine particles that Dr. Miller has researched in so much detail. It's clear that major public health policy will make a huge difference to air pollution, and it's worth considering that the burden of cardiovascular disease attributable to air pollution is not distributed equally. In low- and middle-income countries, air pollution is getting worse and is often more severe than in high-income countries. In many developing countries, the proportion of deaths from cardiovascular disease that are attributable to pollution substantially exceeds the proportion of cardiovascular deaths due to smoking and other behavioural and metabolic risk factors. Now we've explored with Professor Peters and Dr Miller a variety of environmental risk factors. But I am left with a concern. Like many of these climate-related issues, are we taking this seriously enough? I wanted to know whether Dr. Miller felt that cardiovascular community and policymakers were taking the issue of cardiovascular disease linked to air pollution seriously. It's, it's a difficult question to answer, I think, that. Uh, air pollution is now, uh, the public awareness of air pollution is great. So when I have my kids coming home from primary school, they can tell me about PM2.5 and PM10 because the school project's measuring it. Um, I'm a member of the, the World Heart Federation as an, an expert group in air pollution, and they've done a huge effort in saying, look, this is something that we need to take seriously. And I think that message has got out there. I think mo- uh, most 
cardiologists certainly would know that they know that air pollution is linked to cardiovascular effects and is of concern to their patients. The next bit is the sort of the tricky bit. So what do you do about it? You know, how do we pass that message on in terms of training junior doctors? How do we uh, pass that message on to our patients? And that's something you don't see that much. So I recently attended a talk where there was a general practitioner and he was uh, a strong advocate for saying that air pollution has effects and wanted to raise public awareness. And one of the questions I asked him was, well, how many of your patients do actually mention air pollution? How do they say, is that air pollution something to be concerned of? And his answer was none. Uh, none at all. So the public is aware of it, but they're not necessarily thinking, well, hang on, this is something I need to take take care of. And I think that's the sort of messages we really need to develop now. We need to say, well, this is a serious problem. It's also a problem that we can solve. You know, we can we can get rid of diesel exhaust in our environment. We can get rid of other air pollutants environment. You know, this is something that we could use, change the policies, you know, change your behaviour, lower your exposure, and it could well be associated with uh, public health effects. Mm. And I think if we can tackle certain sources of air pollution, uh, particularly vehicle exhaust based on our research, you know, if we can lower those uh, levels of air pollution from vehicle exhaust in our environment, I think we will see substantial health effects. I will think we would see improvements in cardiovascular health because of that. So, Mark certainly feels positive about the rising public awareness, and it seems to think he thinks it's a solvable solution. But you can't help but feel that he thinks there's more work that needs to be done, in particular on a policy level to help improve our environment and on how we translate our understanding of the science into clinical practice. These problems of air pollution and climate change and heat feel very much interlinked. The more fossil fuels we burn, the more air pollution there is. The more fossil fuels we burn, the higher the temperature of the planet. So I put it to Professor Peters that perhaps the cardiovascular science and cardiovascular research community, and indeed the cardiologists of the world, were a bit behind on the curve and waking up to the risks of climate change. For air pollution research, cardiovascular um, health research was really one of the important triggers because the uh, showing that air pollution affects the lungs was not was of course important. Um, however, that it also affected the heart really made people realize that it has a subsystemic impact, that it goes beyond one isolated organ. Um, with respect to heat and climate change, I think, again, the cardiovascular system is key because, at least for Europe, heat will is the, the main issue um, where we have direct impact on our health. And the circulatory system and the heart are the prime triggers for that. Um, there's, of course, also an increase in allergies and, and a change in vegetation and a lot of other things. But I think the um, cardiovascular disease physicians and the scientists have the possibility to really make it plausible that climate change is not something which is happening elsewhere, that this is affecting our health and that people can experience it also and may also see that their parents be affected by it and that this is really, um, there's really the need to take action now. So I wouldn't say that it, the cardiovascular health community is completely behind, but I think they have, um, they have an important role to play. And so I would really encourage the, um, society, uh, the, um, uh, physician societies dealing with cardiovascular health to, to put that forward because I think they can make their case um, very well. So high heat and increase in cardiovascular disease morbidity and mortality might be how Europe actually experiences the climate crisis and cardiologists and the cardiovascular community are going to have a key role to play. I've really enjoyed exploring this topic with these two world experts. And all the best things end with an impassioned speech from a Scotsman. So I thought I would give the final word to Dr Miller to really give his final take-home points on how to best confront the issue of cardiovascular disease and air pollution. And I think his very wise words also ring true for climate change and cardiovascular disease. 
Um, I think it falls back to the similar point before, don't underestimate it. So I, I, occasionally I start talks by saying, you know, our research has discovered that air pollution is bad. And we all know air pollution is bad. You know, there's nothing nothing new there. Uh, okay. I think even now your your person on the street probably knows that air pollution is linked to, you know, cardiovascular conditions. I think that's accepted. But I think don't underestimate it. I don't want to underestimate that, you know, those air pollutants in the environment that we deal with day in, day out, um, that have many different harmful effects on the cardiovascular system. And when you look at population levels, people are dying early due to air pollution that's linked to cardiovascular uh, conditions. It's worsening things like heart failure, it's making strokes happen more often, or the risk of strokes happen more often. So this is really a serious problem. And we've got a lot of things to worry about in an environment just today. So it's going to be hard for me to sit here and say, well, you know, air pollution in the UK, it kills uh, 36,000 people are dying early due to air pollution in the UK every single year. Now, that pales into comparison to the, the dreaded C word that we have going about at the moment. But remember, you know, that hopefully, hopefully the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic is a small, intense period. What we have with air pollution is we have something that is affecting our health year on, year out, continuously. And no one's declaring a public health emergency. Nobody's saying, you know, stay indoors, wear a face mask, do these different types of things, despite the fact it's killing tens of thousands of people in the UK every single day. And I think that uh, that's an important message. You know, we, we need to take this seriously. We need to try and advocate for lowering air pollution. And I generally do believe that, you know, you could improve cardiovascular health if you do that. So there we have it. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Now, uh, I think we're going to move on to what all the listeners are actually waiting for, which is to hear about our climate challenges. Bloody fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. So, LJ, can you remind the listeners what our climate challenges and uh, what the last ones were? Yeah, of course. So uh, we've been undertaking a challenge for each episode. If you remember, after our first episode, we all tried to avoid plastic as much as possible. This was exceptionally tough, and perhaps I underestimated just how tough, particularly when buying food on the go. But we definitely increased our awareness of plastic waste, and we're still trying to reduce. Then in episode 42, Dr. Kassam brilliantly digested the links between diet, health and climate. And I challenged you all to take the next step to make your diets more plant-based and closer to the planetary health diet recommended by the Eat Lancet Commission. So how did you get on? It, yeah, it was um, it was a mixed challenge. I actually I think it was easier than the plastic challenge. Um, being vegetarian, that was we already didn't eat meat, and that was okay. We tried to basically cut out dairy products. Um, I then went for just cows products because I found feta a bit too hard to give up. But I think apart from a small interlude with some French in laws coming to stay, it was basically. <laughs> not that hard and I quite enjoyed um, talking a bit more about how bad for the environment beef was armed with a few statistics from um, that great episode with Dr. Kassam. So yeah, I think it was actually quite a good challenge. What what about you guys? I've started asking people uh, if they're still eating meat or why they're still eating meat. It gets a lot of really uh, mixed responses. (laughs) Some people think it's quite an aggressive question. But um, yeah, I think it's nice to sort of take, you know, take the challenge to them. I think it's difficult. I think you get used to your little bubble, don't you? Uh, same in politics and things you presume because I, I see you guys and a few of my friends are doing it. A lot of doctors are doing it. You presume everybody's doing this. And then you realize actually most of the population are still just eating meat. So no, we've, I feel like we've been pretty successful overall. So back over a month ago, we kind of given ourselves this title of vegetarian at home because we weren't sort of that um, that strict about it. And then we realised if you're vegetarian at home, that just means that everybody just gives you meat wherever you go and you go to a restaurant and you can keep eating meat and all the rest of it. So so we have changed and we made some, some big changes. So one of them was a subscription for oat milk and we've pretty much completely cut out dairy milk. We've uh, tried a load of non-dairy cheeses, some very successful, some less successful, as you heard in <laughs> the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've uh, we've been getting there. We've sort of and we've moved away from being sort of vegetarian at home to more sort of vegan at home with the occasional cheese and the occasional cheddar. That's amazing. Overall, overall, pretty big steps, and we're managing to keep at it. Well done, that's brilliant, guys. and that just sounds really positive. Particularly, it can be challenging with a family and with kids. So. 
well done and I'm really happy that you've all been able to make positive changes and it hasn't been miserable I know it's been miserable LJ <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all crying we're all crying so, no, but I think actually you feel good for it as well and you do you, I um, genuinely feel you know you, you feel some health benefits from you know, being, being more of a plant-based diet and actually like what I did have last had a meet about a month ago or so I didn't I didn't particularly enjoy it and I don't crave it and um yeah less flatulent Barney are you <laughs> far more actually I think <laughs> with those lentils but anyway we won't go there um that's brilliant obviously this one was quite an easy one for me I eat an entirely plant-based diet already so uh not a challenge but I did try some new ingredients um things like banana blossom and hearts of palm to diversify and try and do a bit more exciting cooking so I think that's one of the exciting things you use different ingredients um, and I've also been trying to reduce my food waste because as we talked about, that's another really important way to reduce the climate impact of food. So something we can all keep working on and great to hear that things are going so well. How are banana blossom and hearts of palm and, and what are they? Totally amazing. So I made this uh, seafood pasta and it has um, oyster mushrooms as scallops and then some of these other things, hearts of palm and banana blossoms as different sort of seafood-esque things with a bit of seaweed thrown in. And it was absolutely brilliant. I'll share the recipe. Yeah, yeah do. Nice. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to it. Thanks very much. That sounds delicious. So um, thinking about that, LJ, given that you are our sort of challenge setter and the sort of environmentalist we all hope to be what is the next challenge you want us to take on before the next episode okay great question um i've been thinking about this and i thought i'd better do one that i also need to do myself this time so a challenge for all of us um and one of the most powerful things we can do is to use our voice both as individuals and as healthcare professionals and kind of make our views heard about what we're learning and what we're concerned about in terms of the climate crisis so my challenge is to write to a politician about an issue that's close to your heart related to the climate crisis. This could be a local councillor, if there's a particularly local issue that's going on. Maybe it's about bike lanes, maybe it's about um, new building projects, could be anything. Maybe you want to write to someone a bit um, wider. So I, I was thinking about this. I think I'll be writing to Sadiq Khan about some London-wide issues. Um, or you might want to write directly to someone like the Environment Minister or a member of the Lords. There's lots of options um, depending on what, what you want to say. And we'll put some links in to some really useful websites, including They Work For You and Write To Them, which make it really easy to contact, to find out who your local politicians are, what their voting record is and how to contact them. Wonderful. Thanks, LG. That's a great challenge. OK, it's got me thinking now. Just got me thinking. But I'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we can discuss it next time and find out what people got up to. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. This podcast has been generously supported by St. George's Hospital and Health Education England. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Florman and promotion team Abby and Isabel. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.